going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Can we all stand up together for the reading of God's word? All right. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 says this. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage, and we thank you for uh, the chance for us to gather together and dig into it. And, and here's where I pray, Lord. I pray um, as we try to figure out what you're having to say to us today, that we would focus our mind on, on what you're calling us to do with each other and with the world. Most importantly, concerning love. I pray that you would give us humility in these few moments that we might not just assume what your Bible has to say about this, but rather we would um, know that your Bible is your word and it has the authority to uh, communicate to us what you have for us. And so, so, Lord, let us just lower ourselves for just a few minutes and submit to whatever your word says. That way, when we go out into the world and when we have interactions with each other, we might be showing the true love of God to each other. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, y'all have a seat. Anyone do beginner band in here? Any beginner band people? I know there's more than that. Okay, okay. Beginner band people. So when I was in sixth grade, it came time to go to beginner band. And uh, I met with the director and we had to figure out, you know, what instrument that I was going to be a part of. And it, we came in with uh, the ones that we wanted to do and then we talked to them and they would make suggestions and so forth. I would come in wanting to do percussion. And if you don't know what percussion is, it's mainly like uh, drums, at least that's what I thought. It was going to be mainly drums. Uh, but they tried to sway me off a different direction. They wanted me to play saxophone. Any saxophone players in the room? Hurt my lip, I didn't like it, and so I said no. They then tried to get me to play baritone. Any baritone players in the room? I'm so sorry, I'm gonna offend you. I didn't wanna be lame, and so uh, I didn't want to play baritone. I wanted to play percussion because I would go to the football games and I would go to the pep rallies and I would see you know, the drum line and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. And so I finally convinced them to let me play percussion and I'm like, okay, now where's my sticks? I'm gonna make a lot of noise. And what I learned is, yes, percussion does involve drums, but percussion also involves these things right here, the cymbals, which is much less cool uh, than the drums. And here's what I learned about these cymbals. These, these symbols are every band director's nightmare. Here's why. Because in the same way the proverb says the tongue has the power of life and death, these symbols have the power of life and death when it comes to a, a piece that the band plays, 
right? So, so we've all been at a band concert or whatnot where they spend the past five minutes like building and crescendoing this beautiful music. And then as they're going up to the mountain and they're reaching the apex and the peak of it, all of a sudden you got this beautiful crash symbol that just like, it's like the, the cherry on top of the Sunday that they were making. If the symbol player plays it in the right place, right? One beat early, one beat late, it ruins it. It goes from being this nice bow on top of the present to completely destroying everything that they had been building up to, right? It's 4th of July weekend. Uh, we hear the, our anthem a lot, the Star Spangled Banner, and we all know the Star Spangled Banner, right? It's like, bum, 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 boom, right? It's beautiful. It adds to it. What if it didn't, though? What if someone messes that up? Here's an example of, of how that can derail that. I think out of all the scenarios that could have happened after that, that might be the best scenario, the best possibility. So when the cymbal player isn't doing what they're supposed to do or when something goes wrong, at best, it distracts. At worst, it completely ruins it. And Paul, in today's passage, says the same thing with us. That when it comes to this concept of love, if in everything you do, if love isn't supporting it and propelling it, then it's going to derail everything that you're working towards. Let's go ahead and hop back into the passage and let's see what he has to say about it. So uh, starting in verse one, it says this, if I speak in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So if you don't know history lesson, Paul is um, relating it back to the pagan worship of that day in Corinth. So there's pagan temples and whenever they would worship these pagan deities, they would have clanging gongs and clanging cymbals go on in the background to uh, lift up their praises to the deities. Right? And so what Paul is correlating here that if you don't have love as the driving factor behind your speech and behind your worship of God, guess what it is? It's no better than the pagan worship over there. You might as well just go over there. Right? He keeps going. He says this, if I have the gift of prophecy and I have, uh, understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And so you can have all the knowledge in the world of God. You can have all the understanding in the world of God. You can have all the faith in the world to do many mighty things. But if that faith doesn't have love, you are nothing. He keeps going. If I give away all my possessions, if I give over my body, which is referring to like martyrdom, like if he, he gives up his body to die for the faith, but he does not have love as the driving motivator I gain nothing. And so what Paul has come to the conclusion here that, that in all of our worship, in all of our faith, in all of our works, if love isn't the thing that's propelling it, then we are doing nothing, we are nothing, and we're gaining nothing. 
And so Paul, for Paul, this is a crucial step and a crucial aspect of Christianity that we get right. And because our effectiveness relies on it. Paul, or not Paul, uh, Pastor Lee last week uh, taught through 1 Corinthians 16. We can go throw that verse up, which correlates to this very nicely. Uh, verse 13, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. And how does he end it? Do everything in love. Now, here's the question. Here's the question that we're going to ask today. What does that even mean? Do everything in love? What is love? I, I made sure not to tell Roxanne what the title of the sermon was because I thought she might play that song uh, before I got up here. But the question is, like, like, what does that mean? Paul calls us to do everything in love. What does that even mean? If you were to go ask the culture that today, you would get a variety of answers. And we're going to talk about some of those answers and, and what the Bible has to say about that. But where I want to dig in and land before we get into that is that if you are a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Christ and have the Holy Spirit, we're not left to wonder what that means. Like, we don't have to um, come up with our own imagination of what love is. We don't have to come up with our own philosophies on what love is. The Bible tells us exactly what love is in this passage today. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 16, when he says, do everything in love, they were able to stand with full confidence knowing that three chapters earlier in chapter 13, Paul explained exactly what he means by the word love love. And so what I want to do today is um, I want to go through this passage because if love is such a crucial pillar of the Christian life, then, then I want to walk through this and figure out what does God define love as is. And if we, uh, as we interact with each other and as we interact with the world, um, our hope is that in understanding what God's love is, that we might be able to show what God's love is. And so we're going to walk through these next few verses, and I want to break them down into three categories on how God defines love and what he's calling us to do. Make sense? Cool. All right. First Corinthians, uh, picking back up in verse four is where we're going to be. Love is patient. Love is kind. How many of you had this at your wedding? Yeah. Hear this one a lot at weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Now, now this spans a pretty wide range starting out, right? right? There's a lot of stuff here. But what I think, if we were to break it down into a simple category, what I think it's breaking it down into is how you view and talk and treat other people. Uh, I think that's what he's breaking it down into, particularly in times of disagreement. Because if everyone's happy, if everyone's getting along, you usually don't have to remind people to be patient and kind, right? Like, like if everyone's um, doing fine in the house, you usually don't have to tell people to stop being rude and irritable to each other. It's like, unless there's like a fight going on, you usually don't have to remind people to not bring up the past. Like, are you nudging your spouse yet? Okay. Paul is talking about here, like these things are broken down into a category of how we view other people, how we treat other people, and how we talk to other people, particularly in times of conflict. And that's tough because whenever we get into times of conflict, that's when our love really gets stress tested. Yeah, it's easy to love people when everything's going great, but when things get stress tested, that's when the love really starts to, to, to bend and we start to see if it's actually there. But what I think 
the conclusion comes to to be able to achieve this is to come to the conclusion that love is not about you, that love is about others. And that's our first point today on what is love. Love is not about you, love is about others. And just think about it, if we can wrap our mind around that concept that, that whenever we're trying to love people, that it's just not about us anymore, it's all about the person in front of us, then all of these things that Paul just mentioned kind of just start to fall in line on their own. Like, let's go back to the passage. So if you um, look at love is patient, love is kind. If your mindset is, how can I love the other person? I don't have to worry about being patient and kind because now my thought process is, how can I be empathetic? And how can I see their side of it rather than how can I get my wrongs righted? So like you no longer have to worry about being envious of what the other person has because now you're happy for them and what they have. Like you no longer have to um, worry about uh, being boastful and arrogant, which leads to irritability and rudeness because now your mindset isn't, I've got everything figured out and y'all just need to get it together. The mindset is, let me help you and let me help you understand and let me just understand that I may not know everything now. Like, like when you have this mindset, you don't have to keep a journal of everyone who has ever wronged you in the past because the mindset isn't how have I been victimized my whole life, but the mindset is through the love of God that he has shown me, how can I now show that forgiveness and love and grace to others? The mindset changes completely and then all these things fall into place. And, and I promise you, if our marriages were able to understand this concept, we would have the strongest marriages in the world where we have two people come together and say, hey, I commit to you and I promise you this, that I'm going to look out for your best interest, not my own. And that sounds really scary until the other person on the other side says, hey, I commit to you and I'm gonna look out for your best interest over my own. And that creates an airtight marriage because here's what happens. At the same time, you are constantly not thinking of yourself and pouring yourself into the other person while at the exact same time, you're being constantly poured into. You're living both fully satisfied and all your needs met while at the same time, never thinking about yourself. But that only works when both people are working together at that, right? When, when our marriages come together and all of a sudden our disagreements aren't, don't have to turn into screaming matches anymore because we're trying to work to a solution, not be right. All of a sudden we don't have to bring up every time uh, they screwed up in the past because we're not worried about the past, we're worried on the future and moving forward in the future. When logistical issues like kids' schedules and cleaning the house and financial decisions come up, you're not digging in thinking, how do I be right? You're, you're working with them to think about what's best for our family. Here's a minuscule practical example for you. This week, um, uh, Randy started a new job and that kind of shifted our schedules around a little bit and it shifted our, around our babysitting schedule. And one of the babysitters was coming to our house uh, to watch the kids. Now, I know y'all think that I'm perfect, but my house is not clean 24-7. So here's what happened. It was a long day, um, uh, and the kids got into bed late. And you, parents, you know those days where you get the kids into bed, and then like the next thing you want to do is just go crawl in bed and just fall asleep. Most nights for me. But this one was particularly long, and I was just tired. And I went down, laid in the bed. And as soon as I laid in the bed, what happens? My wife walks in and she says, Hey, the babysitter's coming tomorrow. We gotta clean the house. 
I don't want to clean the house at this point. I'm, my brain is shut off and I'm here. So we got two situations going on. My wife wants to clean now and she wants to get this house taken care of. I want to go to sleep. So if we're going to dig into our, or dig into our viewpoints, one of two things is going to happen. I'm going to um, have to uh, disrupt my tiredness and get up and do something, or my wife is going to have to clean up the whole house by herself. I'm happy to say my wife did not clean up the whole house by herself. We came to a creative solution. What did we do? We acknowledged that both of those things can be true at the same time. So we divvied up what needs to be cleaned. And, and she said, okay, I'm going to clean this tonight. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to clean that in the morning. The solution worked out for both of us because I was looking out for her needs and that I didn't want her to have to clean the whole house by herself. She was looking out for my needs, knowing that I had a long day and I was tired and I just wanted to go to sleep. You see how we came to a solution there? It's minuscule, it's practical, but it's just an example of that. But you may be a person that you have no problem loving your wife, no problem loving your husband. You never get into arguments. You're perfectly loving all the time, right? Is there, are those in here? Okay. But you may have a problem with loving people who you disagree with. I'm talking to all you Facebook warriors out there. You may have problem disagreeing or loving people who, Robin's leaving now. She, this is, <laughs> she's like, I don't want to hear this. <laughs> no one else is going to get up now. <laughs> okay. Um, what was I talking about? Yes, Facebook warriors. So you may, have, you may have no problem loving your wife, being kind to your wife, but when it comes to people who you disagree with politically, culturally, ideologically, religiously, you know, professionally, whatever it is, those people, all of a sudden, all your patience, all your kindness goes out the window and all your boastfulness and arrogance and irritability just funnels its way into those conversations. That may be you and, and this is for you. This applies to you. This isn't just for marriages, this passage. This is for everyone in who we interact with. We are called to be loving and, um, and kind and patient with them. And uh, the passage that we talked about last week where it says, be on your guard, stand from the faith, be strong, be courageous. All of these are military type language, combative language. It means that you're going to be in a disagreement, right? But in the midst of that disagreement, Paul says, do everything in love. Peter addresses the same thing in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 15. He says this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Peter knew that there was going to be times that you're going to have to defend your faith. That there's going to be times that you're getting into conversations with people where you now have to explain why you believe what you believe. And I think Peter knew that these conversations can get contentious. And so he throws in a disclaimer. What's the disclaimer? Do it with gentleness and respect. Sounds a lot like Paul saying, do everything in love. Right? And so if you come into these conversations where you're disagreeing with someone, if you're coming in with the, the thought process of, it's about me, then now when they disagree with me, I'm offended, I'm arrogant, I'm boastful, and I'm mad and frustrated because you don't agree with me. But if the thought process isn't about me, the thought process is, how can I love you? Then now I'm going to be patient and I'm going to be kind through this conversation. And I'm, going, I'm not going to be arrogant through this conversation. 
I'm not going to be self-seeking in this conversation. And the reason is I know that what I say in this conversation is um, just as important about how I say it. Because I'm showing them the love of God as I say the love of God. And you can have the most airtight logic, reasoning, uh, um, uh, defense for why you believe what you believe, but if you say it in the wrong way, it's going to undercut everything you just said, and it's not going to mean a difference anymore, because then you're just going to both dig into your sides and just start going at each other. Love isn't about you. Love is about others. Let's go ahead and keep going. Verse 6 says this, love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Now, I think this verse right here might be one of the most profound verses for our culture today, and that's because I think our culture has such a profound misunderstanding of what the word love means. So we just got out of Pride Month, June was Pride Month, as I'm sure all y'all know, and in that month, this word love gets thrown around a ton, Right? And particularly, uh, where, where I have a bigger issue is when they start to pull God and Christianity into that and then start to attach that to it. So, like, for example, um, a few uh, uh, phrases I've heard is God is love and the Bible promotes love, not judgment. And one that I heard this past week, a video that came across my feed, said, um, Jesus called us to love, period, now, what this means, read between the lines, what this means is if you were to love me, you don't call me out on anything that I'm doing. You affirm and support my decisions. Now, the question is, is that what love means? Like when we say, what is love? What does that mean? Because I think we agree on the statements, right? Like God is love. I agree on that. First John says that. The Bible promotes love. I agree with that. We wouldn't be studying these verses today if I didn't think the Bible promoted love. Jesus called us love. Of course I agree with that. But I think we don't disagree on the statement. We disagree on the definition of that word love right there. And so if you're going to pull God, pull Jesus, pull the Bible into these statements, then now you have to use God's and the Bible's definitions of those statements. And how does God define, define love? Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. And so if you say, in order for me to love you, that means I have to celebrate and affirm and support any decision you make, even if it's sin, that's just not love. That's not how the Bible defines love. And that gets us to our, our second point for today. And that is love is not about affirmation. Love is about truth. Love is not about affirmation. Love is about truth. Be careful. As we dive into this topic, especially with the world, the goalpost is going to shift a little bit, right? The, the goalpost is going to move to where now love and affirmation are starting to become synonymous with each other. And don't let that happen. Love and affirmation are not synonymous with each other. And like I have a lot of friends uh, who uh, have proclivities towards homosexual lifestyles. And I know people who are identify as part of the LGBTQ uh, community. 
And man, I'll try to love you all day long. Like, like I'll be kind and I'll be patient with you. And like, I'm not going to be arrogant. I'm not going to go out of my way to make your life miserable. That's not what I'm going to do. But if you say, in order for me to love you, I have to agree and celebrate and affirm a lifestyle that I think the Bible calls sin, then I'm sorry, I just can't do that. I, I don't think that that's the loving thing to do. In fact, I'll go further. I would say it's the opposite of love. The opposite of love is supporting something the Bible calls sin because, as the passage says, love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. And by the way, this doesn't just apply to homosexuality, transgender issues. This applies to any lifestyle, anything the Bible calls sin. Adultery, affairs, lust, gossip, uh, idolatry, anger, gluttony. If you have that lifestyle, do not expect me to celebrate and affirm and say everything's going to be okay. Because that, the love of God does not find joy in unrighteousness. The most unloving thing I can do for you, if you were walking to the edge of a cliff, the most unloving thing I could do for you is say, hope you have a good time. Right? The most loving thing I can do for you is say, hey, do you not realize you're walking towards a cliff? Can I help you find a better way? And that's what this passage says to do is like, not only are we supposed to um, not find joy in unrighteousness, I think a lot of us are okay with that. I think a lot of us are okay with like, yeah, calling out sin. But the next part right here, but rejoice in the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is this. Yes, God loves you. Absolutely. But God loves you too much to let you live in your sin. And God loves you enough that he's calling you out of your sin and out of your shame and out of your guilt into a life with him that's full of joy beyond whatever sin this world could ever offer you. Those things balance in hand. Find no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. We see Jesus. He actually does this. Again, if you're going to pull Jesus into this and say, Jesus called us to love, period, perfect. I'm fine with that. Let's look at how Jesus handled love. Here we go. Um, so in uh, the Gospels, there was a uh, story where the rich young ruler came up to Jesus. And y'all probably all know the story. This young man came up to him and said to Jesus, how do I find eternal life? And this young man uh, proceeded to talk about all the good things that he had done, all the, you know, grew up, you know, following all the commands, all this good stuff. And then uh, let's see how Jesus responds to this. So this is uh, verse 10, or sorry, Mark 10, chapter, Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus loved him, that's important, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. If Jesus was to respond to this man as the world defines love, then Jesus would have affirmed him. Jesus would have celebrated him. Jesus would have said to this guy, it's like, hey man, you do you, you go live your truth, and I'm, I'm confident, man, it's going to work out for you. We're, we're going to be best buds. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus, in his love for him, that's the important part, Jesus loved him, and because he loved him, he told him the truth. And the truth is this, hey man, that's not how you're going to get to heaven. Here's what you got to do to get to heaven. Give up all this junk that you're clinging to, and then come follow me. Jesus did not rejoice in his unrighteousness, but rejoiced and shared with him truth. 
I've been aiming a little bit at the world. Let's turn it back on ourselves for a second. In the same way that love is not about affirmation, love is about truth, we need to apply that to our friendships as well. Meaning, I think there's some people in this room, I think there's a, a, a part in all of us that wants this, that we seek out friends who are going to agree with us rather than friends who are going to hold us accountable. We seek out friends who are going to affirm all of our um, decisions. And we don't, if any friend starts to cross us and say something to us and contradict us in any way, all of a sudden we start to write that friend out because they're not supporting me, right? They're not affirming me. But the proverb says this, says, faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And so the Bible wants us to find friends who are willing to wound us, who are willing to look at us and not politely smile and agree with us, but look at us and say, hey, I think you're doing some dumb stuff right now. I think you're going away from God right now. I could talk about that a lot longer, but we don't have time. Love is not about affirmation. Love is about truth. Now, before we move on, I think if I was to divide the room in two, I would say we have a lot of people who are like, I'm really good with point one. I can do that. I can be patient. I can be kind. And then we have the other group of uh, other people in the room that say, I'm really good at point two. I'm really good at giving hard truths. And I think there's going to be a tendency to say, okay, I'm going to be a group one person and I'm going to leave the the number two to the other people. And then there's other people. It's like, I'm going to be the hard truth person. I'm going to leave the love and kindness to the other people. It's not a buffet. You don't get to choose, pick and choose what you want. If you order a, a burger from this and it comes with onions, you got to eat the onions. Okay. It's all together on this. I just want to make sure I'm not giving anyone any sort of permission to go be Facebook warriors and just go rip people apart. It's got to be in love with kindness, with patience, without boastfulness or arrogance, not self-seeking, but looking out for the other person. Make sense? All right, let's keep going. Last point. So let's recap our points. We got love is not about you. Love is about others. Love is not about affirmation. Love is about truth. And lastly, real quickly, love is not a short-term goal. Love is a long-term, sorry, love is an eternal reality. Let me paint a scenario for you. As, as we're talking, someone's probably coming up in your mind about who you don't like, right? All right, we're at a safe place. There's probably someone that's coming up in your mind of like, that's hard to love. And if they call you on the phone, you kind of like sigh a little bit. And your mindset might be, how do I get through this phone call loving them? Or you may can't stand your boss. And you're like, how do I get through this eight hour work day to love my boss? That is not the love that we're talking about here. Love is not a short-term goal. Love is a long-term eternal reality. Let's dive into verse seven. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. So if you are going to live out the love of God, you have to remove this mindset of, I'm going to love you while I'm talking to you and then forget about you when I'm not. I'm going to love you as long as I have to be in the midst of you and then I'm not going to worry about you when I'm not. Because that's not love. That's just kind of like shielding like internal feelings. Like that, that's just shielding like frustration and that's shielding um, uh, 
discontentment and the fact that you don't like the person, but that's, that's not how it is. Like, like our goal is to love them through all things, not just in that one conversation. If I was to point to one actual example of this that we can even think of, then it is the love of God. The love of God is the only God, or sorry, the only love that we know that is eternal, that never ends. It has no beginning. It has no end. And, and let, let me just clarify this for you, just in case you didn't know. God demonstrated his love for us in that he sent his only son to die on a cross for us, the death that we deserved, that for anyone who believes in him, they might have eternal life. That right there, the gospel that I just talked about, he planned that and orchestrated that before you and I were even born. Before you and I did anything good or bad, he planned and orchestrated that. And before any of us came to Christ, he did that. And let me just clue you in on another reality. Every day when you sin, even if you know Christ, every day when you sin, he's still loving you through all of that. It's bearing all things. It's enduring all things. It never ends. If you are in Christ, we're going to be standing together 100 million years from now with the same love of God that we have today. It never ends. How do we communicate that to other people? Stop trying to get through a five-minute phone call. Stop trying to get through an eight-hour workday tolerating someone until you don't have to be around them anymore. That's a short-term goal and love is not a short-term goal. Love is a long-term reality. So your mindset doesn't need to be, how do I get through this conversation? Your mindset needs to be, how is it that I can leave this conversation and this person knows that there is a God who loves them and has loved them and will love them? That's where we need to be at. Let me pray that we do. Lord, I thank you for this day, and I thank you, God, that your word reveals to us your perfect truth. And I pray, Lord, that even though we live in a culture that is so messed up on what the word love means, I'm thankful that we have your word to, to course correct us back to what you call us to be. And so, Lord, I pray that we'd stand firm in the faith, but we do it in love. We're going to move into a time of invitation, and in this time, this is really just a time for you to respond. And so you may be a person that you've got all this figured out, except like you just, you're not patient, you're not kind with people. And maybe you just need to ask the Lord to convict you on that. Maybe you need to repent of that. Maybe you're a person that you're, you're kind and you're patient and you're loving, but you have a hard time giving people truth. You have a hard time uh, admonishing people when they're in sin. And maybe you just need to ask God to give you courage in that and to repent of, of where you've affirmed people in their sin. Maybe you're a person that you just, you have a hard time figuring out how to love people long-term, not just through conversations, not just through seasons, not just through days, but long-term. So maybe you just need to ask God to give you strength in that. 
Maybe you need to pray in your seat. Maybe you need to come pray up here at the altar. Maybe God has placed someone on your heart that you have not been loving well. And maybe you just need to ask God to give you opportunities to love them well and show the love of God. Maybe you're a person that, that you're, you're thinking to yourself, I have never experienced the love of God. I've never experienced the forgiveness of God. So how in the world can I show the love of God to people that I've never even felt? And so maybe you just want to come up here and say, how do I get into a relationship with Jesus? How do I feel his love and his forgiveness? We'd be happy to talk to you. However God is working in your life, this is your opportunity to respond. Can we all stand up together? We're going to stand and we're going to sing. And however God is leading you, we encourage you to move.